Please listen carefully. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by presenting just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I am a political scientist. I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. Happy Thanksgiving, Allie. <laughs> it is so close to Thanksgiving. I Getting can al- close. I already feel fatter. <laughs> <laughs> Allie, this is not a joke. I swear to you this morning. This is not a joke. I feel so out of shape saying this. Uh, I was getting, I was putting Miles in the car. All the kids were in the car this morning and I heard a pop and it was my belt. (laughs) (laughs) And that's pre-Thanksgiving. That's right. Oh no. (laughs) Might I make a recommendation of an investment in some sweatpants for you for next week? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm ready. You I am are ready. ready let the, let the gravy injections begin. That's right. That's right. What are your big plans? I know the the dag nine, as you refer to your plural family. I do. Uh, yes, I, I know that you are big celebration people. You're a big chef. We so are. What's going on in the Dagnus household? We are. Well, first of all, Thanksgiving is. I love Thanksgiving so 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 much Me because uh, it is. Uh, after after some um, rather grim childhood Thanksgivings, <laughs> I have I have grabbed Thanksgiving by the horns and um, and demanded that um, I make it all Betty Crocker, which means that it is it's basically it revolves around butter. So yes. yeah, it has to. So I only my mom was a very very good cook she was a gourmet cook but she also added like booze to everything and so <laughs> that's which is fine like i'm a friend of alcohol like it's okay um but when you're a kid you really just want the you know the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top you don't really want sort of like yams that are also infused with vodka topped with wine with a splash of sherry and so um i make everything like by the betty crocker cookbook and all of it has you know the key ingredient is like a pound of butter so when i go grocery shopping for thanksgiving it's like five bricks of butter you know like and (laughs) a turkey um and so i'm very excited we uh we will have family uh my sister will be coming into town. My dad will be here. It's very exciting, especially after uh, COVID. That's really very cool. And um, and then also more family, which uh, will be Lance Bailey and Stephanie Gerard. So we're going to have a, a nice Thanksgiving. How about you guys? Well, and longtime listeners of the pod will know that you mark your calendar. You mark the changings of the season with the different shaped butters. That is that true. Yep. Have you found your turkey shaped butter? I have three in my basement right now. Yes, I do. <laughs> three turkey shaped butter. <laughs> and after this week, um, that's when the Christmas tree shaped butters will will appear as well. And you will know it's Christmas. And that's when I will know it is Christmas time. Yeah, that is absolutely true. <laughs> when you said you were friends with uh, alcohol, it reminded me of a joke. It's a bad dad joke that my grandfather used to tell. He'd say like, you know, what are you drinking? And say. John Daniels. I say, John Daniels? Don't you mean Jack Daniels? He said, yeah, but his closest friends call him John. (laughs) That's really funny. I like that. (laughs) We are, we are, Allie. We are headed to Virginia. Ah, nice. Virginia. Very nice. Thanksgiving, yes. Uh, And um, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but my wife and I grew up in the same neighborhood. You know what? I think I knew that. That is still, it still is the cutest thing in the entire world. This makes Thanksgiving easy, doesn't it? That's exactly right. Nice. That means that we eat one gigantic meal and then go right down the street and eat another gigantic meal. So we'll have lots of family. I love Thanksgiving. I had a student today who was sort of regaling me with the, you know, you shouldn't like Thanksgiving and this and that. I'm like, you know, it doesn't, I don't think about the history of Thanksgiving when I celebrate it. It's a time to get together with family who you don't spend a lot of time with throughout the year and just, you know, have a great time, good memories, good food. Yeah. You know, good conversations. Eat a lot. Looking forward to it. Yep. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> yeah. And and you have already pre-popped your pants. So right. <laughs> so you took care so of embarrassing. you took care of that already. So you don't have to worry about it. You've already done it. You know, it's it was like- legitimately a pop. I'm beltless <laughs> today. <laughs> Well, it was so cold this morning and I already had all the kids in the car 
I'm like, I'm not going to load the kids back out of the car to go get daddy who just popped his belt. (laughs) (laughs) belt. So I'm beltless at work today. So, well, that's okay. It's, you know what? It's Thanksgiving week and um, chances are your classes are barely full. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> and and so the three students who showed up out of 40, uh, I'm sure they, they sat, if, even if they are fashionistas, I'm sure they are not, um, you know, sartorially corrective at this point. They are eyeing the exits. Yeah. I was looking around. I was like, man, is it still Halloween? Because everybody came to class today dressed like an empty desk. <laughs> <laughs> I am very excited. I'm just going to be giving away so much extra credit on Monday and Tuesday. You know, I just, and you know, today, tomorrow, I'm just ready for it. It's just going to be, you know, like Oprah giving away cars. (laughs) You (laughs) You get a point. Yeah. You get a point. Oh, they have (laughs) no idea. It's just going to, it's good. The points are going to be flying free and fabulous because I like to reward people who schlep. You know, I like hard workers. I really, really do. And if you've come you to do. class, you have a, a deep respect for hard work. I really do. That's kind of how I. That's kind of how I favor people. Um, so yeah, I was in class today, and um, I oftentimes, as you know, as you do, you are, are always volunteering for open houses and admitted students days. And if the university does something, Allie Dagnus is there to promote it. And I'm not on your level, but. Um, well, my department oh, sure you something. are. I see you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my department needs something. I'll do it. You know, open houses, all that kind of stuff. Try to put a, a, a nice, you know, happy face because I love our university and I think we're a good place to come and all that kind of stuff. And then you want to help your, your department. So anyway, so I often do these admitted students days with students who are thinking about coming to ship, mm-hmm. have committed and they want to come get a little feel for the university. Um, and usually they ask me ahead of time. So I know they're coming into the class. Well, um, our department chair today had one of the admitted students and I think they had some downtime. So they just wanted to drop in on a class and see how it was going, which I'm totally cool with. Um, Even though you weren't hard. wearing a belt, you were still That's okay right. with that. <laughs> <laughs> down. <laughs> well, no, I was, I was caught off guard because some student had just like derailed the class with a very odd conversation. Oh, no. And then this admitted student walks in. <laughs> so you're pantless and you're having a discussion about like Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, like, well, welcome to ship. It's, it's uh, been a pleasure teaching all of you. I'm fired now. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. So. That's a good way to start a short week, right? Yes, we actually we were discussing the Flint water crisis today. So. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, very very interesting. So the student got a good good idea of the class, and afterwards she said she enjoyed it. So that's yeah. great. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm glad so she the ship. didn't come to my class because I think we were discussing the Flint stones. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to all of our audience, we are thankful for you. Thank you for Absolutely. listening to us. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And um, thank you for people who rate us on Apple iTunes. Is that what you say? Apple iTunes. <laughs> iTunes. Uh, I think it's Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, yeah. whatever yeah. it is. Thank you for that. And um, thank you for telling your friends. And uh, thank you for your feedback and for the emails. And uh, thank you for all of it. We really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun for us. And, and we're happy to hear that it's fun for you, too. Absolutely. And uh, today we got a good show for you. Who are we talking to today, Allie? We do have a great show today. The topic is important. It is timely. And we are going to be joined by James Gerber, who is a scientist from the University of Minnesota. And he's with the Institute on the Environment. And I am very, very excited. I'm excited as well. And Dr. James Gerber has actually been an author on previous IPCC assessments. So he's a really good expert to come on and help us understand this. Now, very briefly, I want to give our listeners an introduction to this topic based upon information from the United Nations as well as the New York Times. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, is the United Nations body which assesses the science related to climate change. It was established in 1988 to provide political leaders with periodic scientific assessments concerning climate change, its implications, its risks, as well as to put forward adaptation and mitigation strategies. And in fact, our guest today, James Gerber, one of his areas of expertise is mitigation strategies. 
So the recently released report, known as the Sixth Assessment, was prepared by 234 scientists from 66 countries around the world. And it's based upon analyses of more than 14,000 scientific studies. Compared to past reports, it relies on greatly improved climate research and understanding of the climate that has developed over the last decade. So just to give our listeners an example, we now have much more observational data, which is temperature measurements and other data from instruments on land and in the oceans and in space. We also have computer models that simulate the climate, which have greatly improved over time, as has computing power, and thus the amount of data that can be included in these models. So what does the report say? Well, the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez said the most recent IPCC report is a code red for humanity. The alarm bells are deafening, and the evidence is irrefutable. The assessment finds that the Earth is warming at an unprecedented rate and that human activities are a primary influence. The report states that, quote, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land, unquote. Increases in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since the 18th century can be directly tied to the burning of coal, oil, and other fossil fuels as the world has become industrialized. So the world's already warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius and will continue warming for at least 30 years. And we will likely reach the 1.5 degree threshold, which was laid out in that Paris Climate Accord, by 2040 or sooner. The IPCC scientists warn that global warming of 2 degrees Celsius will be exceeded during this century unless rapid and deep reductions in CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions occur in the coming decades. Unfortunately, the world can't really avoid some of the negative impacts of climate change that are already occurring, but there's still a narrow window to keep the devastation from getting worse. So we need to step up our efforts and pursue the most ambitious path forward. We need to reach net zero CO2 emissions and limit other emissions like methane. We need aggressive, rapid, and widespread emission cuts starting now. If we don't, then the problems that we're already seeing will only intensify. So things like sea level rise and flooding, the threatening of ocean ecosystems, extreme weather, heat waves, longer warm seasons and shorter cold seasons, droughts, reductions in Arctic ice, snow cover and permafrost, and negative impacts on both agriculture and public health. So... This sixth assessment that came out from the IPCC recently is a really, really important report. We're really glad to have James Gerber here to help us understand it, and we will speak with him coming up next. Dr. James Gerber, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's begin very broadly, if that is okay. Uh, can you please describe to us what the IPCC is and what it is that you do there? Sure. The IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So we essentially report to the, the governments that uh, form part of the, the um, treaty that established the IPCC, and our role is to assess the scientific literature and report that in summary form and in detailed form back to those governments. So our role, again, is to assess the literature to try to do so in a way that is policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive, right? We, we, we don't say governments must do this, but we can say if governments wish to avoid a certain outcome, then here's how that can be done. So I, th I think one, one key thing to know is that there are multiple working groups that comprise the IPCC. One is the physical science basis, and they had a report that came out in August. Another one is focused on adaptation, right? The climate is changing. How can we adapt to it? What needs to be done to, to deal with 
changes in climate variability, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third one is mitigation. So I am a lead author on the mitigation report. That means I'm one of about uh, 16 authors on a particular chapter. And there are uh, 17, I believe, chapters in that report. And so each one of those chapters has about 16 authors. Is that about the number for each one of these chapters? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think ours has more than some. So I, I think a typical number is around 160 total lead authors writing each of these assessment reports. Wow. So before we jump into this sixth assessment that came out, uh, my, my let's back up just one second and talk about um, so, so the IPCC is under the auspices of the UN, right? And can Correct. you talk about, like, do you do you petition to try to get a spot on that as like a career builder? Like, how does one um, become a part of that team? That's a great question. It's pretty opaque. Um, the director of the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota, where I work, recommended, uh, rather nominated me and some other scientists to to be lead authors and I was accepted some other scientists who I, I think would have done a great job uh, maybe even a better job we all have different strengths I was accepted what kind of work had you done prior to this that you think led the folks to to put you into the mitigation group I had worked in, in the land use sector and I had done a lot, a lot of global level analysis of how what we do to the surface of the earth impacts the climate. Mostly working in agriculture, it, it's, I think people are often surprised when they learn just how much of an impact agriculture has on greenhouse gas emissions. About a quarter of global human-caused greenhouse gas emissions can be associated directly with agriculture, right? That's about half because we, we deforest and, and clear peatlands to, to, to make land for growing crops, and partially because what we do on the land itself when we're growing crops can release a lot of powerful greenhouse gases. So because mitigation pathways will almost certainly require interventions in the land use sector. It, I think it made sense to have me on there because to, to consider these policies from a scientific assessment point of view, you need someone with expertise in land use. So I think that's why I was, I was put there. So when it comes to, I, I don't want to belabor this point too much because I, I do want to get to the report, but I, I just find your work interesting. And now that you've brought it up, um, when you talk about, obviously when you remove, I guess they're called carbon sinks, right? Anything that can sequester carbon dioxide, that's an issue. So I'm sure that falls under your purview. But also, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the second part of that, which is what we do with the land that releases CO2. So can you talk about what it is about agriculture? I mean, I'm aware of like the, I don't even know how you, what you call them except for poop lagoons. I'm, I'm aware of like how, you know, um, livestock and, and having more uh, waste than you can fertilize quickly with lets off methane and those sorts of things. But how is agriculture, in particular, I guess, industrial agriculture, contributing to this? What are the different pathways? That's a good question. There's a lot to unpack there. So let me do my best and we can circle back if I miss anything. The, the number one impact is really through deforestation or land use change, right? If you, if you cut down trees to you know, have land to, to put cattle or to grow crops perhaps to feed them, once you cut down those trees, very soon they will, will decompose once they're no longer alive. And all that carbon that comprises the tree will wind up in the atmosphere. But also there will start very quickly to be changes in the soil carbon. And a lot of carbon in the soil will wind up through various biological processes, will wind up in the atmosphere. So that is, um, again, the, the, the number one issue, I would say. Um, and that is, I, I think, in many ways, one of the easiest things to stop. And parenthetically, I, I know that there were some pledges that, that are coming out of the Glasgow um, meeting right now 
about countries committing to reducing deforestation, and, and that is, is great, great news and cause for optimism. Um, but on-farm practices are important. For example, fertilizer, nitrous, nitrogen fertilizer, which, which you need, right? No, no, I want to be clear, no one is saying we should stop fertilizing crops. Um, it leads to emissions of nitrous oxide, which is a very, very powerful greenhouse gas. Nitrous oxide is around 300 times as powerful as carbon dioxide on a, a uh, per kilogram emitted gas basis. Uh, you mentioned livestock. Live, there are two issues associated with, with livestock. One is, well, you, you mentioned manure. You know, manure, if not treated carefully, will lead to emissions of methane, another very powerful greenhouse gas. Cows also, cows in particular, but other ruminants as well. Just the process by which they digest their feed leads to burping a lot of, of methane. It's just, it's just how, how their biology is. But I would say the, the uh, perhaps the biggest issue associated with livestock is just that it takes so much land to produce the feed for livestock. Right? Livestock represent, in, in many cases, a very inefficient way to, to turn crops that humans perhaps could eat in their in the form in which they are grown into something that, that humans can eat. Dr. Gerber, did you want to speak a little bit about the Glasgow meeting that just has been going on? Um, because it feels like there has been a lot of news coming out of the summit and um, maybe some challenges that you might be facing given your work. Um, or was this actually some very good news for you and your research? I feel there was a lot of good news to come out of it. For example, the deforestation pledge. I mentioned. I think there's some some good and some bad. Obviously, environmental scientists, I, I want to see more pledges, not less. And the pledges still have not been quite where I would like to see them. And there are always, of course, the, the unresolved questions of, yes, you can make a pledge, but it, will there be the action to, to back it up? One thing that is unfortunate is that the work of my assessment, the, the working group to which I am contributing, is not is not available to the, the policymakers. So th that is a little bit frustrating to hear people talking about things that are still sort of in the finalization process as part of the working group three. When do you expect your, um, your work to be completed? We just sent off the final draft. There are four draft reviews. So we, we, we write an outline, send it in to the Central um, Technical Support Unit, which is sort of a very bureaucratic sounding name for a set of scientists helping to make sure we all stay the different chapters focus well. I believe that the final review will be completed and this will be released in March. All right, well, here's what we all came to this episode for, Dr. Gerber. Um, I'm gonna read you a quote from, um, which I'm sure you've heard very well by now very many times by now from the um, UN Secretary General uh, called the most recent assessment a code red for humanity. So um, can you tell us from your perspective, what were the big take home messages from the most recent IPCC assessment and how worried should we be? Are we at hair on fire level now or what's, uh, what's your perspective on this? I'd like to preface my answer just by by making clear that I'm not speaking on this topic as an IPCC scientist because I, I did not help contribute to working group one, the physical science basis. Uh, however, I, I do feel that it's appropriate for me to talk about it because I've been doing research and, and working in this domain. Just to give you a little bit of uh, a feel good here, people will feel better with you doing it than the sociologist in the room. So you, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I am a physicist, I, I should point out. And so I also have, have quite a bit of, um, of knowledge of some of the background processes. I, I did study that for, for a while. Um, you know, I feel that there was good news and bad news in these results. So I, when I was reading through the report, 
I chose to focus more on some of the positives and not so much the scary code red. This is in part because day to day I'm immersed in a, oh yeah, things are bad. So I don't mean to minimize that. But for me, there, there was a desire to take the long view and recall that not, not very many years ago, the range of likely outcomes included some really scary scenarios, you know, five degree warming, six degree warming. And this latest report makes that seem much less likely. That is good news. Yeah. Right. So I feel because this report has really constrained the range of likely temperature outcomes at, at mid-century, although it's taken away the any realistic path, again, in my, my, my view, to remaining below 1.5 degree change, it's also taken away the really scary scenarios as well. So... If you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic, I think there's something in the report. For me, I, I have chosen to, to focus on the really scary scenarios being taken off the table. Had had it been the really scary scenarios, I mean, I can't even imagine what a five-degree increase would result in. Um, what would that have resulted in? Uh, I, I think it would have resulted in... I mean, I, I, I feel like we need to use our imaginations to consider that, you know, because right now there's been, you know, between 1 and 1.5 degrees warming, and we're, we're, we are already seeing events that are contributed with ever-increasing certainty to human-caused climate change, and it's leading to droughts and, and floods, um, you know, and, and agricultural failures and, and heat waves and storms and because of all the feedbacks in the system I, I think it would be unimaginably unimaginably bad if that were to happen so so i recently heard somebody and i'm, I'm grasping to remember who it was i think it was someone in triple as or, or or one of these uh, big organizations but <clears throat> i recently heard somebody talking about some of the pledges in reductions by 2030 and then by uh mid-century and the way that they put it was that even with the reductions in our, on our current trajectory, we're still headed towards about three degrees. Does that sound right to you? That sounds right. Um, that is, I, 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 I've seen that research. I've not done that research myself, to be clear, but I, I've seen some of that research and current trends do have us at, at three. I think there's room for optimism there as well because the that's based on um, well, taking a step back, right? I think a really useful way to, to think about this is to, to consider the, there's two gaps in emissions reductions relative to, there are what nations say they, they want to do. For example, under the, the Paris Climate Accords, uh, almost all countries, all signatories to the, the accord put in a nationally determined contribution, how much they said they would reduce their emissions, Okay, and so th there's a gap between what countries said they would do and what it takes to get to 1.5, and there's also a gap between what countries said they do and what they're on the way to doing. Okay, so if you look at current trajectories, yes, we're, we're headed to about three degrees warming, but I, th I think that countries are, are getting better about closing those gaps between what they said they will do and what they are doing. And so I think that given ever-increasing awareness of the problem and more willingness on the part of, of governments and policymakers to introduce measures to, to improve carbon mitigation, that I, I, I do think it, I think three is still on the, the pessimistic end of where we'll end up. Can you, can you explain for folks who may not be as um, familiar why three degrees, two degrees even, um, is so significant because I, I mean, I remember several years ago, there was a, a congressional hearing about climate change. And at the time it was still being called global warming. And a congressman came in with a snowball and put it on top of the desk and said, there's no global warming. It's snowing outside. See, everything's fine. So I think that for folks who maybe are not as adroit in the sciences uh, as others, can you just kind of explain for um, for us, why is two degrees 
which feels like, well, if it's a two degree difference outside, that's not such a big swing. Why is it a very big swing? So two degrees actually represents quite a significant change in our climate, right? It may not feel like much given, you know, how much temperature varies within a day or over a year. However, those, the, the variation in, in temperature or climate has is, is the space in which humanity and the Earth's ecosystems have evolved. And changing that, that two degrees, changing the mean two degrees really does represent a very large change. I mean, for example, think of, think of glaciers and the impact that will have on sea level rise. Right? There is, a, there is a, a, an average temperature that every existing glacier has seen for the past you know, thousand years or, or multiple thousands of years. And that that average ha- has been changing relatively slowly, and all of a sudden there's this big change of two degrees, which is much greater than those changes. That will lead to changes in in how much ice sort of accumulates on the glacier, or or more currently currently is melting. So th- that is in fact a, a big change. Th- there is, I think, one one important downside to keep in mind when talking about two degrees, and that is that. One fear I have is that if we fixate on 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, that there'll come a point when scientists say, you know what, we just can't do it anymore. It's too late, even though warming is not yet at, say, 2 degrees. The processes are in place. The carbon's already been emitted. We're about to go past 2 degrees. And then the danger is, I think people will throw up their hands and say, you know what, it's all done. I'm just going to you know, enjoy life before we're all... Uh, go extinct. There's always room for action. It's always possible to make things better. The truly scary human go extinct scenarios are not the ones being pushed by climate scientists. So there, it's important to have targets, but it's also important to know that in the big picture, it's always a good idea to decrease greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. So you were not a fan of the day after tomorrow. You, you didn't think that did a good job of uh, that movie did a good job of pushing your accurate message that it's going to be another ice age and we're all going to be migrating south <laughs> across the Mexico border. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The disaster porn, as I've heard it called, it, is often not very conducive to good policy. <laughs> So uh, can you talk about what are some of the big mitigation techniques that we should be thinking about as a country to hit our climate targets by mid-century? There are, I think, a lot of changes that we'll have to make. But fortunately, a lot of these changes will not ruin our lifestyle. There are many things we can do that can create jobs, that can help maintain lifestyles maintain quality of life that will help achieve mitigation targets. One thing I'll note is that what that looks like can be very different in different parts of the world. In the U.S., the bulk of our emissions are in transportation and energy, whereas there are some countries where the, the, leverage, the leverage points are things in the land use sector, such as you know, stopping deforestation. But you know, in, in the U.S., and again, this is one of the reasons that I, I actually am not as pessimistic as, as some people expect me to be, is that we've made amazing strides with electric vehicles and the infrastructure. I mean, it's just the number of cars that are, not just cars, pickup trucks too, that will greatly decrease uh, fossil fuel emissions in, in the U.S. is... Is, is really good news. So there can continue to be progress there. And, and I think there will need to be. So, so, uh, so transfer mitigation techniques. So electric vehicles, uh, also I'm, am I right that we're probably gonna have to be thinking about doing more in the energy production, like, um, renewables and more efficiency and more, more cleaner energy in electricity production, those sorts of things. Is that true or? Yes. So I, I think the, the, the whole energy sector will, will have to to achieve mitigation targets for the U.S. And th- there's lots of reasons to to think that is, is very doable. Uh, renewable energy gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And um, more and more sectors are 
amenable to electrification you know, with vehicles. But now, for example, you know, people are, are installing the heat pumps, which run on electricity and or can run on electricity, which can you know provide heat in, in winter and, and air conditioning in summer and you know, obviate the need for fossil fuels for heating. And I mean, people are doing that even here in Minnesota, right, which is known, of course, for its cold winters. So that, that is a very, very promising development. There are other forms of, of efficiency we can, I think, pursue. You know, dietary shift is always one, not necessarily a popular topic. But I can just tell you that if you're telling me I have to go on a diet, then your your time on the show has ended, sir. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I am not telling anyone to go on diets. I never tell anyone not to eat eat meat. Uh, I mean, the, the truth is that the in the U.S., the meat that we produce is actually produced relatively efficiently. Okay. Again, nine. So nine percent of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions in the United States are associated with agriculture. And the global average is about a quarter of all anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. So we, we produce meat very, very efficiently. We have these incredibly productive farms uh, that, that produce feed, and then we, we often raise meat under in these, these industrial agricultural systems, and it, it is very efficient. And it actually can lead to some interesting questions because there's a certain opportunity cost associated with that. Some people advocate for eating less meat so that we can have less land producing corn. If you take land that's producing corn and let that revert to prairie, say, maybe that's the Midwest perspective. But most places where we grow corn, there used to be prairie. That will sequester a lot of carbon. So there's an opportunity cost to the, the meat that we currently eat. But again, I would just like to reiterate that no one is telling people stop eating meat. I think that some of the pushback would be, you know, to, to change the cornfields to prairie would also be to lose the jobs that are there. So what do you, as you're talking about this with folks who may push back on you and may be hesitant to some of the recommendations. What have you seen and what have you found to be the most effective arguments used to convince Americans that A, this is a, a very big problem and B, that there are solutions that can be found that will not destroy industries, that will not um, you know, make large swaths of Americans unemployed, that will not you know, make sure that Lawrence will never eat a hamburger on the 4th of July again, <laughs> um, you know, that, that will not change Americans' you know, way of life. Because it feels like as soon as somebody says, gee, we're going to have to change something, um, everybody hits this gigantic overreactive panic button and, you know, globalizes arguments. And suddenly we're talking about things that aren't, that were never suggested in the first place. So what do you, what do you see as the, the most compelling arguments made and the most effective ways of making them? That's a great question. Again, I feel there's a lot to unpack there. And it is true that some of the changes I am talking about would lead to dislocations in the economy. I think it's best to talk to where opportunities will arise and not focus on where some opportunities may be lost. For example, there are many, many people with good jobs now in the renewable energy sector, installing solar panels, constructing wind turbines, for example, those jobs did not exist before. So it is inevitable that there will be some dislocations. We just need to focus on the, the positive. Uh, I am not advocating for certainly any any regulations on farmers that would keep them from, from farming their land as they see fit. Uh, any policies I would advocate for would involve compensating the farmers at fair market values and only only if they, they choose to to take up those those incentives. There are many policies right now that are getting farmers to contribute to climate change. From my perspective, and again I am here in the Midwest, farmers, while politically tend to be conservative, 
they are conservative in, in really a, a very positive sense of that term. I mean, they, there's nothing they want more than to, to preserve their, their soil and help preserve the land. Often farmers are caught in a difficult spot between market incentives and, and a desire to, to do what's right for, for the land. But they are very willing to take up practices that will help sequester carbon in the soil. All right, James, you're a lot more optimistic than uh, I expected on this episode, which is good. So uh, for us who are energetic by your optimism, tell us what can we do to contribute to solving this climate crisis? That's a great question. Uh, There's a lot we can do that many people are doing, such as recycling, changing light bulbs, energy efficiency. But I think one of the most important things to do is to support policies that can help us make societal shifts. There's there's something we like to, we have articulated as, in my IPCC chapters, shifting development pathways. In order to achieve wide-scale mitigation outcomes, we need to make decisions together as a society to change, to impact how we evolve as a society. And I'll give an example that, that someone shared with me about what it means to shift a development pathway. Here is a great climate change policy. Improve schools. Okay, and at first that's completely unintuitive. But what happens if schools in, in say, the city I live in aren't good? Okay, well, people with resources, people with means are going to move away from the city. They're going to get big houses and big cars and have big commutes to their jobs none of which are, are good for climate. So if you improve schools, there's a big climate win. And of course, there's a very uh, important societal win as well. So there's a policy that doesn't seem like a climate policy, but in fact is a climate policy. Now, you cannot realistically ask any parent to not do what's best for their child, right? So individual decisions can only take us so far unless as a society we make deliberate choices to help enable individuals to to make choices in a way that won't have a, a big cost for them i mean there are many other examples um for you know having a good infrastructure for electric cars so if someone wishes to get an electric car they, they don't have to worry about not being able to go more than well ranges are so great now that it's hard to come up with a number for where I was going with that. Uh, in the land use sector where you know where I, I do research, there are a farmer, for example, who wants to, to plant a cover crop. And cover crops are great, right? If you put a cover crop in, what, what that refers to is you know, you'll plant you'll have your corn or soybeans during the main growing season, but then you'll plant something just to, to overwinter. And that something that you plant can have a good great benefits it it will help uh, keep soil from eroding which can help keep carbon in the soil can help with certain environmental issues downstream Um, it can help fix nitrogen to the soil so you can apply less nitrogen next growing season and for some cover crops there are things that you can sell or, or have as forage for animals so it's great however you know farmers take a huge risk in doing that under under some recent policies, which are now starting to change, they would risk lose if they couldn't get the crop off the field by a certain date, they would actually lose the benefits of subsidized crop insurance on the main crop. So farmers have a huge disincentive to do this thing that would otherwise have a lot of benefits. So um, that was a choice that society made, not necessarily deliberately, but it was a choice that was was baked in and kept individual farmers from doing doing the right thing both for their fields and for society. So these decisions are made, and going forward, I I think it will be critical that they be made at all levels of of government and policymaking very deliberately deliberately with climate goals in mind. You've, you've mentioned recycling. Uh, you've mentioned, you know, less driving in cars or more carpooling, especially in cars that need gas. Um, I know that sometimes it could just feel like such a big problem that's overwhelming for us. So yet 
there are things that each one of us can do that will help. And together it becomes, you know, it is a collective problem. So it could be a collective solution. So what else would you recommend that individuals do that will help us be a part of the solution instead of part of the problem? Two things come to mind. One is to be aware of one's footprint and be, be deliberate about the actions one makes, right? You don't, I would say to people, don't, don't make yourself miserable doing things that don't have a, a big impact. So just have a sense, right? Driving less probably has more of an impact than, than recycling some marginal piece of plastic. But I, I think that the really important thing is to support policies and, and governments and politicians and companies that are trying to take climate change seriously. And I, I want to stress that that is not a call for people to, to vote the way I do. There are serious thinkers on both sides of the political spectrum here in the U.S. who are serious about addressing climate change. There are conservative-leaning approaches and, and liberal approaches to them. I mean, of course, there, there is sort of a conservative strain of thought that pretends that climate change isn't happening, but there are serious thinkers with, with serious myths. So I'm not making a political call there, but that is, I think, one of the most important things we can do. Um, now, I know you you teach at the University of Minnesota, and so uh, you're probably teaching a lot of grad students and really high-level uh, graduate students who are doing a lot of high-level work. So this may not be a question that you can really answer, um, but... Um, for people who aren't necessarily studying this, who are studying business at a school like ours, you know, sort of a regional institution, are there online resources you suggest like carbon calculators and that kind of stuff that students can go and really kind of explore these issues further and really get a good grasp of them? You know, I'm going to recommend, again, with the theme of optimism, I've tried to, to promote projectdrawdown.org. I do have a personal connection I will disclose, which is that the current director of that I, I used to work for, but I have no current affiliation with Project Drawdown. They are an organization that is, in a way, answering the question, if I have some money to invest in addressing climate change, what can I do? And they, they have, about, I think, 100 different possible interventions, and they rate those. Uh, sort of in a bang for buck kind of way. And it's, it's really rewarding. It's well-researched. And I mean, there's a lot of things that pay for themselves, right? I mean, new building codes, for example, pay for themselves. If you insist every new house has energy-efficient windows, you, you cut down costs in the long term. Just it, it's hard to pass those policies. So that's where I would, that's my answer to that question. Check out projectdrawdown.org. If, if people work together and make these changes... What would be an ideal? You close your eyes, and in ten years, where do you see? Where do you see us? Where do you see the world? Where do you see America? How will things look? How will things get better? I think there are two things on my wish list. My ideal world wish list. One is this stops being a partisan issue, mm. and we agree to have a a well reasoned, informed, all in good faith discussion about what should be done and then that we pursue we at least start with all the things that are really no-brainers there are so many things out there that will achieve good societal outcomes which will pay for themselves by investing in human investing in human capital and will make societies better and will you know create jobs there are so many things out there that could have a positive impact if we could just work together on those things, we'd be making a big step towards making measurable progress towards mitigation goals and I think get us ready to tackle a slightly deeper set of challenges. Well, Dr. Gerber, Senior Researcher at the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota, we deeply appreciate you joining us today. This has been a very informative conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. 
There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's UtterlyModerateNetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet Take a liking to you.